Hey folks, in the upcoming discussion, you'll hear me saying fantastic and awesome a lot, and I'm working on that. You'll also hear me say later in the episode that I couldn't quite put into words what I was thinking at the moment. That was as much due to the amount of Calvados I had ingested by that point in the episode as to the fact that I'm rarely good on the spot. I've had time to think it out now, and what I was feeling was this burgeoning excitement. I was playing host to an amazing group of First World War enthusiasts who were really passionate about the episode topic. It is really inspiring when you meet a group of people who are as deeply interested in the same subject you are, and who are just so incredibly knowledgeable and articulate. I am incredibly grateful that with all of our different schedules and time zones, this amazing group of historians came together for what will hopefully be the first in a multi-part series. Having had that discussion in December with Alex Lyons on the experiences of his grandfather, it has reawakened one of the motivations I had when I began podcasting, that of getting the story of the French army in World War I out into the English-speaking world. In the English-speaking world, we tend to see the First World War through the constraints of language. So, for a long time, we've mainly seen the British-centric view of the war. Or we have seen the New Zealander view, or the South African, Australian, Canadian, or American. Of course, books on the French experience in World War I have been available, but it has generally been much more limited than, of course, the British experience. And that, naturally, is understandable. In recent years particularly during the years around the centenary of the Great War, new and translated books have been published on the French army and related topics, and more is being worked on. The topics of the French army and France in World War I are ones that, I'm happy to report, have intrigued my guests as much as they have me. In a quick overview to set the stage for our talk, France went to war in 1914 as a country of 40 million people. It went to war in 19th century uniforms of dark blue tunics and red trousers, calling up 8.5 million Frenchmen over the next four devastating years. When the guns went silent in November 1918, the now Adrian-helmeted and horizon-blue-clad PCFs Pauvre con du front, or poor bastards at the front, had seen 1.4 million of their brothers fall on the field of battle, with another 4.2 million wounded, a million of those wounded and significantly disabled for the rest of their lives. More than two out of three Frenchmen became casualties in World War I. Around a fifth of France was occupied by the Germans and devastated by the war, and these areas were in many cases obliterated by four years of relentless artillery bombardment. The occupied areas represented much of France's industrial capacity, yet by the end of the war, the French army was the most mechanized of the world, and one of the best equipped. 
The French had enough industrial power that it could carry the ill-prepared Americans and provide tanks and artillery for them. It was a supreme effort made by a nation and its people determined to repel the invader and see the war through to victory, coûte que coûte, whatever the cost. So I'm really excited to present this first discussion on these fascinating topics, and I hope you enjoy this first talk. All right. All right. So, um, Jim, reading from paper here. Uh, hey, folks, this is Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. So we have something that we've never done here on the BFWWP before, and that is a roundtable discussion of the French army during World War I with some of the best Great War historians in the field today. And this is going to be part one of a, at least a, a two-part series. With me this evening are Bart de Beer, who co-wrote a Dutch-language Western Front Guide for Beginners with a friend and another book in Dutch on the poppy and how it became the universal symbol it is today. We have Bryn Hammond, a professional museum curator, an experienced military historian of Britain in the First World War, an author of Cambrai 1917, The Myth of the First Great Tank Battle, which is actually up on the shelf right there. Bryn's blog, Van Frong, aims to, quote, awaken interest in the French experience of the First World War in an English-speaking audience, end quote. We have, returning to the podcast, Alex Lyons, the man who spends his free time telling us the story of his Poilu great-grandfather on Twitter. We have Steve Marsden, a student and researcher of the 1914 Battle of the Frontiers and its effects. Jim Smithson, author of A Taste of Success, The First Battle of the Scarp, the opening phase of the Battle of Arras, 9-14 April 1917, as well as two guidebooks on the Arras battlefields. And we have Dr. Rich Willis, author of the forecoming Fighting for the Butcher, British Troops Fighting in General Mongin's 10th Army, July through August 1918. Not joining us tonight, but hopefully at a uh, future date for part two are uh, Miss Christina Holstein and uh, Mr. James Taub. Um, and we hope to, to have their expertise with us uh, next episode as well. But this episode, this discussion, this is the brainchild of Alex here, uh, who was recently on the podcast to discuss the experiences of his great-grandfather, a French participant in the Great War. We have a great group here and please forgive me uh of for anything that may happen um as this is the first time that i have uh, managed uh, anything of this size and scale with that um hearty beginning uh we'll, we'll go ahead and, and we'll begin so gentlemen welcome to the podcast and i want to say again thank you so so much for taking time out of out of your evenings um, for me, it's afternoon. For you guys, it's getting on into the evening, uh, particularly for, for Bart, so I really, really appreciate it. So welcome, and we'll get into the, the first question here. So we're talking French army during World War I. Um, so what aspect of the French army and its, and its experience in the Great War 
interests you the most and why? And I believe first up is Alex. Yeah, thanks very much. I'll keep it brief because I know the other gentlemen will want to uh, prattle along uh, along for a long time. So uh, for me, it's very much around the French soldier, i.e. the individual, about their daily routine. Again, there's obviously a reason why, uh, because obviously with my great-grandfather and reading a lot about it, it just immerses you in their daily routine, their daily life, understanding their pay, the leave that they seldomly got, the uniform, the inadequacies they had around that, around equipment, the conditions they endured, uh, but also at the same time, the vocabulary that came out of that period as well, in terms of all these weird and wonderful phrases and words, etc. So for me, it's all about that. It's about the individual soldier. As we said in the previous podcast, I I dare not use the word poilu, but again, it's about the, the, the soldier themselves, their routine, their life, what they were doing. Yeah, I was, uh, I think it was um, the, the Van Frong uh, blog. They were talking, um, Bryn, you, you had written about um, La, La Systeme De, which, which kind of means like adapt, improvise, overcome. And like, maybe, maybe we can get into that later on. But yeah, that that whole language that that's come out, and and I and I have to apologize. I've used poilu my entire life, but like now on our last conversation, I know that like that wasn't even like the right thing to say. So um, it's not what they no. call themselves. So, Don't. Um, but just out of you <laughs> no, know, I mean, it's one of it's one of these where it's the it's the newspapers that create. It's like a lot of things these days. Yeah. Even now, um, the newspapers created the whole the whole movement around the usage of that. <laughs> Of that word and it stuck i mean there's a reason why it stuck because well it, it worked very well um but them as individuals they had so many other uh, different ways of, of dressing each other and i think that's also a good segue as well in regards to talking about dressing each other uh there's one person who's potent who would be definitely missing from this which is obviously uh dave omara and i think as a we lost Dave what, as a year ago, pretty much now. And he would have been able to obviously provide a huge amount uh, to this conversation. And in his book, uh, his two books on the Somme, he talks a lot about this. He talks a lot about the different names that soldiers used amongst themselves, etc. So again, hopefully we can do Dave a bit of justice with this as well. Definitely. Jim, your... your um... What aspect of the French army and its experience interests you the most, sir? Um, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I've been involved in doing lots of great war things for too long now. Uh, but the work on no, the work on the Northern Guide took me into the Artois battles and took me into where the French army was in fifteen, and it started making me think a lot about where the French army made mistakes and then started to learn from the mistakes. So as an educator, because I was a teacher, uh, I started thinking about learning. And I realized that actually a lot of work that's been done on the British Army and how it developed through the war, there hasn't been the same sort of Anglo-centric uh, literature on the development of the French Army. There is some out there, but not very much. And certainly there's not been a lot of work in the whole discussion over how much the British Army then failed to learn from the French Army in exactly the same way that the, Brit the American Army then came over from 
the States. And we all, the Brits, love to have a go at the Americans for saying, oh, we know how to do it. But in 16, maybe the Brits were doing the same. We were saying, we know how to do all this. We're ignoring the French. And it's got me into all, and it really, all the research I did into the Artois battles took me deeper and deeper into the French army. And I realized how little I knew. And so that's really got me into that. But very much on a slightly higher level scale of that learning to fight as uh, as a country and how they learn to fight as an army and as a nation. And so that's got me at a, a bit higher level. So it's interesting with Andre, with and an, 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 uh, that sort of difference between the low level, the soldier, mine's at a slightly higher level at the uh, the whole of that sort of aspect of it. But yeah, that's my, that was my background. Ah, oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. And, and uh, again, like there's so much about... Um, the French army that I think is uh, d- during World War One that that's closed off to to English speakers. Like um, a lot of stuff just hasn't been translated uh, yet. Or, or I- ideally, we would also learn French and close that gap. But uh, until then, yeah, excellent, Steve. Uh, your 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 aspect of of the French army, sir. Yeah, August fourteen. Uh, the reason being purely personal. I've always been interested in military history. Uh, you know, going back to the 1980s, I've visited the Somme, Flanders, like a lot of people, but I've also been touring around. I've been to the Marne, uh, Argonne, Verdun, even the Vosges in the 1980s. But my main interest then was the Second World War. Uh, my wife's a teacher, and she was doing a school trip early part of this uh, this century, uh, 2005, 2006, something like that. And we wanted to do a piece on the Battle of the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and my wife is Belgian. She comes from comes from the Ardennes, uh, uh, the Semar Valley. And I was trying to find an up to date book on the Battle of Ardennes. So when I was talking to the kids, you know, it was the current thinking. And I came across uh, a book, Battle of the Ardennes. I looked into it, read it, and I thought, well, actually, this is a wrong war. This is this is the First World War. Uh, and then I read it a bit further on, and I. I thought, well, that's the village where I, my wife's from, and that's the next door village where these where Ross, you know, and all these battles. And I was, you know, when you suddenly feel ashamed that you knew nothing about it, my in-laws had never told me anything like this. And from that day on, I, I made it my sort of mission to find out about it. Because, you know, the first battle of the Ardennes was a lot bloodier than the second battle of the Ardennes, and it's a different part of the Ardennes. I mean, if you look at a modern map, the E411, Auto, which runs from uh, Brussels to Luxembourg, it's quite handy because 44-45 is to the northeast of that. 14 is the southwest of that line. So it's easy to separate on a modern map where they are. And that's what got me first interested. Unfortunately, I've able to go to the area four or five times a year. So the last 20 years, I've got to know all the local historians and visited places and, and so on, uh, and got to know a, a, a tremendous amount, I think, about that particular battle, or those battles because the series already 15 encounters in northern France and southern Belgium uh, between French 3rd uh, and 4th armies and German 5th and 4th armies. But uh, that's the uh, that's the background to my interest. It's uh, my being ashamed that I knew nothing about it 20 years ago. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, like, there's um, so so much stuff that, that a lot of people don't know. Like, I... Um, I was just uh, telling my my missus that like uh, that that we occupied Germany a- after World War One, and and she had like no no idea. I mean, um, and I don't think like a lot of people do. You know that that the French and and Americans um, 
British as well. Yes. See, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like uh, ignorant of that. Um, so yeah, the even the Belgians. Belgians. Really? Oh, like in the in the Saar region, or or Saar was where the French occupied it. Okay. Saar, yeah. Oh wow! See, like again, exposing another another gap here. So yeah, to 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 find out like that, there's a whole world of of you know history waiting for you there. Uh, Bryn, your your um your aspect of the French army, sir. So it's it's basically everything. Um, it's, I know that's a bit of a cop out answer in one way, but the whole thing fascinates me. I I I, I need to declare, you know, that I I I've been studying the British Army in the First World War for uh, thirty plus years, and um, and I was stale. I, I'd heard it. I, I didn't know it all, but I'd heard a lot of it before. It kept feeling like I was revisiting stuff that. You know, people were turning up new discoveries. So I was thinking, well, this isn't new to this isn't new to me, but it's not interesting me. It's not firing me up. And and there is an element where, yeah, the global pandemic played a part. The, the, we we were all in a situation whereby you, you you needed to stoke your interest. You needed to find things that fired you up. Um, language was one thing, and I read um, I read one book um, which I'll refer to later on about French army in the First World War. And I was smitten. I was taken straight away. And it, it really, I, I rediscovered my love with the history of the First World War. Uh, and from that point onwards, um, it, it's interesting, I, I, you know, I could consider myself really knowledgeable to an academic level about the British Army in the First World War. About the French Army, I'm a beginner. I'm a novice. I, I know less than probably most of the people in this meeting. Because they all have, you know, specific knowledge about specific aspects, and I'm learning generally about the whole thing, and I'm loving it. I, I, you know, I'm just loving it. It's, 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 it's the enthusiasm that I feel for it now is, is just wonderful. That's that's so awesome. That's super cool, Bart. Sir, your um, your your take on the on the French army. Um, I follow Bryn. Bryn's way of thinking, really. Um, for me, it's very simple. Whatever the French army did, what it has done, uh, why it did that, that will get my attention. Well, it's the trucks, the fact that the French have the most motorized army on the Western Front, or, uh, as Alex said, the daily grievances of Poilus, uh, French soldiers with their equipment, uh, plans that weren't working, why weren't they working? Whatever, it, I'm, I'm very thoroughly interested. And it started with the realization that I, when I was studying first Ypres, the realization that without the French, I think Ypres would have been lost. So from the very first, let's say, serious moment when money times has arrived, the role of the French has been essential in the first world. So that triggered me to get to know more. And also... Um, reading some first-person perspective material like uh, Bartas, for instance, that really got me going. And I, the book that Bryn was referring to got me going as well. Awesome, awesome. And last but by no means least, uh, Rich. Yeah, so I, I, I guess a, a bit like the rest of it, the rest of the group, a, a lot of it, it really interests me in different aspects of of the the French involvement in the war. You know, they were the senior partner for the entire war, 
to all to, to all extents and purposes. But certainly by British historians, British historians, they 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 don't get a lot of coverage, partly because of a language issue, which most of us probably suffer from if we don't don't speak French or read French. Um, there's a couple of aspects though that that particularly piqued my interest. So it's, it's mainly the period, I guess, 1917 onwards, particularly 1918 and the, and the events of 1918, um, and also the sort of you know at a specific level, looking at the the generals uh, and and the generals and the politicians and how they interact with with each other. And frankly, how much most of them just detest, detested each other. We tried to get them sacked at many and uh, all opportunities. Some of them, the uh, and just the sort of you know, it seemed at times it was quite chaotic. At other times, it was very calm, um, and and just you know the whole of that period from the disastrous development offensive, which nearly lost the French the war. Um, it, it was it was probably the the closest they came in a way to to defeat after 1914. They never in 1918 they never really came that close to defeat, even though the British seemed to think they were. Um, yeah, so that no, the, the, particularly as I say, the the commanders, the senior commanders, they're, they're the ones that um, I have a, a particular interest in. Petan being being a, a notable one, um, and I'm sure. You might disagree, or might might agree. You're not allowed in in some ways to have a, a positive opinion about Petan because of, of what happened to him in the in the in, in, in the other war that we don't talk about. Um, but actually, you know, he he was he's an absolutely fascinating character, and, and certainly without him, certainly without him, France was would have been in a terrible terrible situation come the middle of 1917 onwards. And 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 Jim Jim's talked about this before. He probably wasn't the obvious candidate in many ways, but he was certainly the right candidate for the for that particular time. And 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 so I've done, I've done quite a lot of reading about about Petan, um, and and he's turning into an absolutely fascinating character. And I'll add to that as well. I think the whole Petan thing is becoming more and more problematic in France in that I was actually over the summer just reading going to some bookshops and actually just looking at certain books on Pitin and those books some of them are 400 pages long some of them are 500 what is given to his first world war is about 50 pages it's kind of it's like it's if you take the Joseph Stalin element of airbrushing history, there's an element going on of airbrushing Pitan's First World War, and but that's all that we know what happened afterwards. But it also means we're getting a warped vision of the First World War in that sense because people yeah. are forgetting what an important individual he was. He saved France twice. If you want to kind of look at it in two ways, you have. Obviously, Verdun, and then you have 1917, where he's crucial in those two kind of turning turning points. But you read books these days, they care more about what's what happens further along. They they kind of forget what he does at the start. And again, history should be looking at facts, not kind of pandering to what uh, people want to hear. We we need to stick stick to the facts. And the problem is 
is that, yeah, unfortunately, it's about something like Pitat. He's being, yeah, his role is being diminished in that sense. And he should, he should have, you know, it's slightly unfortunate in a way. He should have died in the twenties or thirties in a way. Yeah. You know, yeah. in that case, in that case, every town square, you know, every little village would have had a pet, yeah. rude of town. You know, and there were a number of those done, but you know, when it comes to Second World War, is what late seventies, early eighties. You know, my my dad's eighty two. I wouldn't put him in charge of making a cup of tea, frankly. You know, so let alone let alone trying to uh, you know save the French nation. And you know, he was obviously in a way he was, he was way way too old at that point. But he he sort of would deserve a really really good. Revision, or you know, a, a really good another look at at his first World War career. There's a, um, yeah, that's interesting. You, you're, um, you guys are reminding me of a um, of a novel I read years ago where where the main character dies in, at the end, and um, but then like the the author wrote like like uh, he he made he had made himself perfect by dying, which like that if. Pétain had like passed away in 1928, like everybody would be like, oh my God, you know, like he's just the best thing, you know? And um, yeah, and there'll be Rue de Pétain like everywhere uh, in in France. I, I don't know if if you guys can answer this question or, or even uh, address it, but it, like, um, and Alex, this might be more for you since, um, uh, or, or Bart as well, like since I believe your, your French skills are um, the strongest here. Is like with 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 diminishing Beethoven's First World War um, experiences and just focusing on on his Second World War and and you know the the Vichy regime is that a way? And this is a total digression from the podcast, but like, is are they using Beethoven as like the battlefield to um, to fight out stuff that's going on today in France's world? Or in French domestic politics, is it like, uh, well, if you support Beethoven, then you are a, you know, you're a you're a right wing Nazi collaborator, or you know, and if you hate him, then you're a left wing this or that. Is it is he just being used as a as as an argument piece? I mean, fr from my point of view, you've obviously got the whole element with Vichy France, and it gets wrapped up with the Front National, um, with the FN um, in, in France. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say that the younger generation in France even have a clue who Pétain is. I, I would even go, I'd even go probably that, that far to say that many of them just won't, will only know him because of what happened with Vichy, Vichy France. Yep. They won't really have that much of a, an insight. Actually, I was, I was speaking to my wife only a, a couple of weeks ago about, the whole element of what do they teach in French schools, i.e. is there a focus on the war? Because, for example, in the UK, there is a big focus on the 11th of November. But, for example, I did history for GCSE and also A-level, but I spent my time learning about the unification of Italy. Um, Perfect for you, Mike. Also, U.S. U.S. Uh, U.S. interwar years um, and communism in Russia. I did. I did very little about that real period, 
And in France, I think there is there's an element that the First World War is remembered because of the 11th of November, because they've got a holiday. So there's a big kind of element to that. There's also, and I think it probably is helpful, someone like uh, Macron. Macron actually has a big... Um, he's very interested within the First World War, which makes, it basically all stems from Maurice Genevois, who he's a big fan of. So there's also an element that with with that Macron has been a lot more, let's say, I don't say pro-First World War, but there's been a lot more talked about. And obviously with the centenary and everything, there's been a lot of things that have been able to push that. But it's it's hard to reset. I mean, I don't live in I don't live in France, but obviously I go there often. I work uh, work in France, but I think Pétain is just a troubled character, and it's it's kind of it's a bit like the First World War, honestly, in France that it's it's kind of shunted off to one side is the best way to to kind of describe. It. I don't know if the others feel like that, but for me, it just feels as though yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was the First World War. They kind of seem to be a bit ashamed about it. But they shouldn't be. That's the thing in my in my kind of thinking, because they concentrate so much on the Second World War. The Second World War has such a massive you go to any bookstore in France, it is all Second World War. There wow. is very few books on the First World War. However, there are pockets of huge knowledge and great writing being done on the First World War. But just the general public, it's yeah. But um, hopefully that's going to change. I mean, with Tirailleur seems to be doing very well in France. So that's going to be great uh, publicity just in general. Mm -hmm. Even if the film has issues around the uniform. I I just thought I'd bring that up. But anyway. Uh, (laughs) But I think that will help. Uh, That will help. It's just all about... It's like we, we always say with everything. As long as people are talking about a subject, that's going to bring it back into popular into popular domain we can all say what we want about all quiet on the western front it was great it was amazing it was terrible but it got people talking about the first world war and it's it's funny like um some of some of the best in in my opinion some of the best french uh some of the best world war one films have been french like a, a a very long engagement um and I, I'm missing the. I'm going to mess up the name here, but I watched it coming back from France in 2021. Did did Avoir like the? It just came out. It's it's the the gentleman. He's a, he's a, a good casse, and and he and his friend, um, they they engage in a in a scam to like make World War One memorials. But really, they're fleecing everybody out of their money. I'm I'm going to try and find that name. But I thought that was an excellent film, and then um, oh, there was, yeah. And, and what I saw, I, what I rewatched recently, which was great, is Croix de Bois, Les Croix de Bois. Oh, okay, it's okay. A, it's an old school one. I mean, it's from the, uh, I think it's nineteen thirty two. I want to say it's excellent. Oh. I mean, it's just yeah, yeah. Another one you're talking about. I think if I can just come in here in terms of I spent a long time in Germany. I was thirty odd years in Germany, and. The French and the Germans suffer from one particular thing when it comes to their history, and that is actually getting past the Second World War. Yeah. <laughs> their thought processes. Mm. It dominates their politics, it dominates their philosophy uh, so much for two diff- totally different reasons, in a way. Um, one to do with Nazism, obviously, on the German side, and how they... But it, it, 
and then the French is is to do it's to do with a little bit. It's a mixture of shame. It's a mixture of of and then the Vichy part of it, and, and, and the shame sort of mounts up. The sort of the shame of so sudden defeat in the same sort of way that they had the shame from 1870, 71. And then the the actual shame of then almost siding with the Germans and that, what that puts them in historical terms. So they and they can't get past that bit. It's almost as if it's a barrier. It is in Germany. You start talking about war in Germany. And immediately, if you start talking about, oh, it's the First World War, it's not the same. I'm talking about the first, oh, no, it's war. And it's why, and it's what a lot of people don't understand today about their attitude to the Ukraine and everything. The Germans have an incredible psyche about war generally, and it comes from the Second World War. Um, it's really difficult to, to, to get through. And uh, Andy's right. It, there are pockets of people who are fascinated and thrilled by it. They have an immense respect for the fallen of the First World War. And I would say even more than we do, even though we have this whole great thing about the Commonwealth War Graves and all the rest of it and the, all the cemeteries. And when it comes to the respect for those who fell in the First World War, who were wounded, they have a massive respect for that. So it's all concentrated, as Andy said, on the November of the other. It's all concentrated around the period of remembrance. And then for the rest of the year, it's sort of, well, that's not relevant now. Uh, <laughs> lots of other things, and I know the people around the house in Arras where I have. I mean, the, the farmers there are always intrigued when I'm out there, and they always talk to me about the fact that why are you doing this? What, what are you looking at these for? What, what's all this about? Uh, what happened here? Um, and they're interested, but only because somebody, some strange Brit, is wandering their their fields and wandering around the place, looking a bit lost and. Uh, staring at maps and then staring at the distance <laughs> what is he on <laughs> uh, but it, i really think it's very similar for different reasons between the german uh, very similar between germans and french that's why pitton can't be talked about because he belongs to that first part then they can't get there. so you can't write about pitton because it's it, it's blocked by the second world war um but yes there needs to be some work on him and uh, there isn't really a good book in English. I don't. I don't know, Andy, whether there is one in French or not. I don't know. Uh, on Pétain, just in the Great War, um, because it, they just get lost in the fact that what hap whatever happens afterwards. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Just to, to, I guess we should probably bring it back to to World War One. Um, I, I did find the the name of that film. It's called uh, Au Revoir La Haute, and then in. In English, it's called See You Up There. So I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but I, I thought that was uh, pretty excellent. But also to bring it back to the discussion here, like it's interesting that like World War One is largely, largely seems forgotten both uh, to, to the French people because um, one thing that, that always grabbed me uh, very early on, like even as a teenager, was the French army, like how they uh, just took these incredible losses, this incredible price that they paid and, and, and performed like, well, like they were a, a, uh, a damn fine army. Um, not, you know, not, not perfect in any way, but uh, of course, but like, but the, the fact that they made it through those four years and, and made it to, 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 a to, to victory ultimately, like that's, that's pretty amazing. So I wanted to, uh, to hopefully uh, use that as a as a bumpy uh, way to, to get into the next question here, which is um, what is the first thing that that comes to mind 
for you gentlemen, when, when you think of World War I and the French army, and we'll go back to uh, Alex here. Well, it's, it's kind of a good segue because uh, what, what I was going to say in terms of the first thing that I, always comes to mind for me is just the losses. And when I say losses, it's from a humanitarian point of view, but from a human individual, but also from the physical side as well. Because, I mean, I still remember taking car journeys with my parents going from from north of London down to, for example, Paris. And when you drive down the motorway, you see kind of all the different um, signposts. So you've got your signpost going off to Bimi, Notre Dame de la Lorette, and you can also see cemeteries as well. And and now even when you take Eurostar, you can you can zoom through the countryside if you if you want. If you you can just spot cemeteries one by one as you're kind of zooming through the uh, that flat countryside. And it's it's one of those things when you start thinking about it. When you start looking at the numbers, I mean, that is what I find scary and shocking because the French nation in terms of the population was 40 million. So 40 million in 19, in 1914. While you hit the end of the war, they've lost 1.4, just, well, just shy of 1.4 million. And that's not casualties. These are dead. So that is... That's a that that's a these are huge numbers that you're you're dealing with. You then add on to that around three million wounded as well. I mean, you're these are massive massive numbers that any country is going to struggle to recover from, especially with a forty million population. You talk about lost generation, well, it's more than a lost generation; it's a couple of generations. And then you add on to that, for example, I was just reading recently, there was about 60,000 who were amputated as well. So again, they, these are just people then who have been scarred by the war. And then you talk about scarring of the war, the landscape that got scarred as well. You think about, for example, the moonscapes that you've got. We go to just somewhere like Verdun and you see what it did to the, to the landscape. And then you think, for example, just in northern France, there's around 300,000 houses destroyed. I mean, all of that has to be repaired. People are re- have, having to be relocated. You also think about then just the villages that were destroyed and the towns. I mean, I think it's quite hard to quantify actually the number of towns or villages that were destroyed because so many of them got rebuilt. I mean, someone like, for example, uh, Vauquois, you kind of go, well, that was a destroyed village because they blew the whole thing up. But because they then moved the village just down the hill, it doesn't count really as some as a destroyed village because it's just been relocated. Um, so, yeah, for me, it, it's very much that. It's the loss. It's the loss of life. It's the physical loss in terms of the landscape. Um, and just, yeah, also just for their citizens as well in terms of how how it moved just masses of population as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Steve, your um, your your thoughts when when you think of World War One and the the French army? Yeah, generally the, the the fact that they fought from the English Channel down to Swiss border, the entire front, the French were there at some time during the war fighting, uh, and that's what gets me the sheer scale of their effort along the whole entire Western Front. That's more of a general point. 
the specific point, the fact that I can, when I go to my in-laws in, uh, in Belgium, I can walk, it's about four miles away to Rossignol, there, and one division, which is about 15,000 men, the Colonia, third colonial division, lost 11,000 11, men in a single day, or combat. That's casualties, prisoner of war, and killed. And those sheer numbers that uh, gets me, and the fact that it's just, it's such a beautiful place now, you just wouldn't think that carnage took place. Linked onto that, my uh, boat players originally from Et, uh, which is where the 7th Division fought on the 22nd of August. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, civilians killed there, and it's one of the few places of the Battle of the Frontiers where it has been commemorated regularly on the 22nd of August uh, because both the Belgians commemorate it and the French come across uh, and do the same. Uh, and those, the sheer numbers again there, it wasn't quite as bad as the Colonial Corps, but the divisions there were, were losing some like 56% casualties of the regiment, the frontline regiments, the uh, 103rd and 104th. Uh, and it just brings it home to you that these are places... You know, I'm a wedding reception up the hill in Matua. Down the bottom of the hill, you know, five o'clock in the morning, the first foot of the hussars came off his horse, dislocated his shoulder. That was the first casualty, something innocuous like that. Late by the end of the day, they'd lost so many men. And, you know, I'm same place, 90-odd years, 100 years later, I'm in a wedding reception, enjoying myself, and blissfully unaware of this, the, this carnage that took place in the environment. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard, hard to believe, hard to believe. Awesome. I'm going to switch up a little bit. Rich, your, your ideas, because I think your, your focus is more like towards late war, correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, my, it's, it's an interesting one because there's so many things you can think of and, and, and different, different periods and, you know, different events and, and different people. But yeah, yeah. So, so like I say, yeah. My my interest is 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 mainly the second second third or the, the third third of the war, seventeen eighteen. Um, but but similarly, you know, they were still taking a huge a huge amount of the overall effort. They still had the the vast majority of the front, even through till. Very, very well into 1918, um, they still had a, a huge proportion of the front, but also the the um, the mechanisation and the advancement of the of the French army. Um, it was was nothing short of of remarkable, really. Uh, and and you know those are the sort of things that I I sort of you know comes to the, the front of my mind. But also, you know, when you when you travel and visit there, you know, you go through every every little tiny village, every town, and there's, you know, like the UK in many ways, there's a, a war memorial or some sort there. Um, just a little, the, the number, the huge number of names that are listed on on that war memorial, and you know, sometimes you see as well, which it really brings it home to you, um, some of the civilians that, that were killed there. In, in some of those villages. And, and some of the villages, there's quite a lot of civilian, civilians killed. Others, there's just a handful. But again, it's, it sort of takes you back to the, um, the, the battles were happening on, on French and Belgian soil. 
and across obviously obviously across to Italy and, and, and other places as well. But you know, these were these were people who were fighting for their for their homeland, you know, both the French and the Belgians. And you know, trying to understand what these people must have been feeling like, trying to protect their homeland and, and you know, a lot of the industrial northeast had been lost to the Germans. And you know, it was, so for them it was very, very, very personal because it was about their homeland. Whereas, you know, if you were British or, a, or a, you know, Americans or, or Australians or wherever, you know, you're fighting effectively a foreign war. Um, so it doesn't have the same, in, in some ways, it doesn't have the same resonance that it would if you were, you were fighting to defend your own country. So, you know, and we, we talked about it earlier a little bit. I, I do find it a little bit, disappointing in some ways that there's no there's no equivalent of the western front association or the great war group or the great well there is an equivalent of the great war forum which is an online forum um in france in france uh, and it doesn't seem you know there's, there's a lot of interest in the great war um from the english-speaking world what's the wfa's got what five six thousand members worldwide you know, uh, and some of those will be will be French and in France, but you know, you would expect. Well, me on a personal level, I sort of expect the French to be a little bit more interested in the war. And and, and Jim's talked talked about that, and Alex as well has talked talked about that. And and so to me, it's one of the things that that when I think about the French army is, uh, you know, what you know what gets me going is as well as that that need to keep their memory alive you know, on behalf of the French nation. And, 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 and that, that, to me, is one of the really interesting... You know, I haven't got any relations who are French or Belgian, for that matter, but, but still it's, it feels like it's my war, in a way, and, and it's, it's important that we do share what we know and, and, and keep, keep learning about this, particularly the French side, because it's absolutely fascinating. Steve, Steve talked about it. Bryn's talked about it as well. That you know the developments that, that have gone on, and we're all we're all learning every day. Huge amounts learning every day. You know, we probably only scratch the surface between between the sort of six of us here. Um, but but we're we're probably almost at the forefront of the of the research as well, and the, and the knowledge gain. You know, even though we we know so little. It's not a huge population of of people who are interested, do you know, writing about it, you know, researching about the about the French army, um, and if we can get more people interested in it, that would be absolutely fantastic as well, you know. So, you know, the more the more power to to us, the better. Awesome, yeah, absolutely, Jim, your your thoughts? Yeah, I mean. Um... I mean, I said earlier on, my I was brought in by by thinking about how the French army actually reacted, and to sort of follow the trend of what Andy was saying and so on. How did they actually survive? Which they didn't do in forty. How did they survive fourteen? And uh, basically, how did they then rebuild themselves? Because if you think about the disasters of fourteen, uh, for most nations, that would have almost been it. You know, the whole nation could have got, they've lost a large amount of their land, they've lost their, their industrial capability, they've lost their coal fields, 
and they their 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 government run away. <laughs> Basically, they leave Paris, they go run off, and it has all it smacks of. If you go back to the Napoleonic times and the, the then the the German uh, French wars of the eighteen seventy, it goes back to the time when the French could very easily have just said. Okay, we've list, we've lost this one. What do you want, Germany? You know, we'll just we'll just roll over, and they didn't roll over. And not only did they didn't not roll over in terms of the Marne and so on, first Marne, but they also then came back to create a fighting force, uh, which is what uh, Rich talked about by developing the technology and the munitions and the industrial. They rebuilt their industries. They they did everything to kick the bottle out of France, basically. Um, and they never lost that. And that's for me, is that and that looking at it from the academic point of view, it's the 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 sort of the learning, the the actual process of learning and how how do we fight this war and how do we move this war on. Uh, but behind that is the emotional side of keeping going. And it is immense. People talk a lot about 17 and all the, the, the sort of the disobedience in 17. But that was really just a sort of, we're a bit fed up with the way you're dealing with us here. We don't not want to fight. We just want it to be dealt with a bit differently. Um, just don't tell us not, you know, just don't let us go and leave. Just give us a bit more wine, whatever. Just treat us a bit better and we'll then go back and fight. And 18, for me, that's something that has to be thrown down the throat of a lot of Anglophilic uh, historians, 18 is all about the French actually rising, almost like a phoenix. Because in 18, they rise like a phoenix in the summer of 18, and they save the British, as far as I'm concerned, they save the British. Um, the British army would have died. They would have gone. Uh, if the French had been as bad as Haig continually said they were, <laughs> he would have been back in Britain yeah. by around June uh, 18. And the whole of the British Army would have been back in Britain, or what, what could escape would have been back in Britain? April, April it would have been. Well, even earlier, okay. I was giving the, I was giving the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but if it hadn't been for the French actually somehow clawing themselves back from a, you know, again, uh, <laughs> how many times, that's the other thing, how many times did the French claw themselves back? And they didn't just do it in terms of morale. They did it in terms of intellectual processes of how do we fight this war and that's what really fascinates me their move towards creating um the the the, the air division creating the artillery pool you know pooling the the, the, the f actual military thinking behind we've not just got to survive this war we've got to win it and that's those two parts the emotional part of of uh, surviving and keeping going um and then the technical side of, but how do we do that? And they managed to do most of those. And people don't realize that. And that's what really, it's like um, we've been said by everybody so far about the fact that the, we don't accept that in the Anglo-centric world. We tend to think of it as, uh, you know, we just throw them off. Um, and we don't just don't realize what they did. And that's for me as a central driving force for me now on getting out and, uh, uh, really going back to what Richard said about it, I think what we could be starting to do is create an Anglophilic set of history, history of the French army, which we'll have to translate into French. <laughs> we'll have to send them all to France <laughs> and actually populate the French um, bookstores with books about their army <laughs> or written by Englishmen or American or Belgians or whatever. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I did have a, a thought. I was like, oh, like, so as you gentlemen were, were speaking here, I, I was I was just thinking like, oh, wouldn't that be cool to like write a book on, write the book on, on Beethoven? And then, um, you know, the, the, the lack of a uh, Western Front Association for the French, I was like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to like be the person to start it? But like, I don't know how they'd accept like an, an American or uh, I might need some some British help. The reason why they don't have an association in France is because they're very siloed. Is yeah, the, yeah. Is the way I would look at it. So, if you look at, you've got people. So, so you take someone like the Chemin des Dames, Chemin des Dames, the Caveau des Dragons. They do a lot of great conferences and a lot of great um, kind of different <laughs> different speeches and get and invite a lot of people along. Then but you've got Verdun, them. the Museum of Verdun, the Memorial de, de Verdun. They do exactly the same thing all across. Uh, France, all along the line, you've got these siloed areas where they are doing great work. They are bringing in, they're having the conferences, they're having speakers coming, but they're not joined up, if you see what I mean. They don't have that overarching umbrella to go, right, this is the French association. No, it's all fragmented. No, I'd take that further north and uh, the, the whole area of the Artois has quite a, a biggish group of people who are very interested and very knowledgeable about all the battle because uh, people have used. And then you go to Lourdes, which has its own um, organization. It has a little museum, which is not open all the time. You have to ask to be let in there. Um, and they know everything about that. And they they have walks up on the on the on the battlefields every year around the anniversary of the battles of Lourdes. And Brit- the British battles of Lourdes, they go marching out there. You know, this is not the French battles of, of Lourdes. They actually go out for the British battles of Lourdes. Um, and so, and, and Alex has got it perfectly. They they all love their own little area because it's part of their own local history. They're, they're, yeah, they're a bunch of local historians, local military historians, and. Anybody tries to pull them together, and it's like, why? <laughs> you basically get pourquoi? What? Why? What? Wow. Why? Yeah. What? What? Should we? what, what we? I'm not interested in Verdun. Yeah. <laughs> they literally would say that to you. I, I'm not interested in Verdun. I'm not interested in the Chemin de Dame. That's somebody else's. That. The only thing that runs counter to what we've been saying about the lack of interest, or that, is that in the UK and I presume in America, there's no particularly magazine that comes out in the First World War. You may have the Western Front Journal or Salient Points or whatever. You go to France, look in the supermarket, there's two or three magazines on the First World War. Yeah, it, it, it's country where we're... You know, so there's a reason for that, because in France, technology is five to ten years behind the, behind the curb. So, for example, in France, they're still very much in the magazine generation. They love their magazines. But you then take... What's going on with the podcasting world? So the podcasting world, look at the number of podcasts you have on the First World War, Second World War in the English language. Go and have a look how many there are in French. You're going to be, the number starts with a big fat zero. <laughs> well, it's not the technology really, Andy, because I mean, they've, they're far further ahead than the UK with fibre. As far as oh, I'm yeah. <laughs> I think it's a reticence to want to adopt it. I mean, there's people that I've met out there in the battlefield, and these people, as you say, huge amounts of knowledge. They they'll take you to places which you would never be able to find. But it's kind of like, yeah, they all. It's kind of like, okay, well, are you telling other people about this? And it's like, 
Well, I, I, I go on the 1418 forum and I write some posts on there. And uh, for them, it's the, that's, that's their centralised point is basically that 1418 forum. Um, when if you think about it, if you started getting all those silos together, speaking on podcasts together, just having a chat, that's really what a podcast is. It's having a chat, but recorded. Wow. <laughs> You'd have a real great source of information. But going back to what you said, Steve, in terms of magazines, remember there are at least five magazines on Napoleon. There are two magazines on Napoleon the third. I mean, why? Why? <laughs> So, Isn't there one magazine just on tanks as well in France? From what I remember, and the, the Blinder, yeah, the Blinder magazine, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we have that in the UK, but uh, but you're right. It's a, it's an interesting one, Steve. That they, yeah, fourteen eighteen is a. It seems to survive, so it must have a reasonable circulation. But mm. but it, that's but that's the problem. It circulated around all the people around France, who all belong to all these little groups. We all go and buy their fourteen to eighteen and read it. But yeah, nobody seems to be able to say, "Let's get together." Let's have a national. So it is weird. Yeah, interesting. Bart, what's what's your your take on this? Do do you you agree, disagree, or and and uh, and what's what's when when I guess the two part for you, sir, is is that and and you know when when you think of World War One in France, like what um, what do you think of? Well, obviously, I recognize quite a lot of what the gentleman be speaking about. I mean, what Jim said about the the and other people about the huge French losses. But for me, um, the place that epitomizes it all will and will forever be Verdun. Um, that's where a lot, well, getting to know the French side of the First World War started for me. Uh, visit the place quite often. And if you start there from what the French have been suffering there and you take it to what Jim said, how they reinvented themselves and stood up victoriously in, by 1918. That's a true miracle, which is doesn't get the attention it deserves, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you made... Um, Bart, I saw that in, in, in our communal uh, document here that, that you made uh, a reference to the, the unrespected generation. Well, yes, because me too in... Getting into contact, let's say daily, day-to-day contact with, with common French people that you would meet in a supermarket while you're fetching lunch or something, um, and if you start to talk uh, about people to people about the First World War, for instance, people who live on the Somme, quite a lot actually, and that was quite shocking for me in the beginning. Just you know, they pull up their shoulders. Um, for me, obviously, when you're Quite passionate about the First World War. That's 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 a very heavy, quite a heavy blow to take, really. I mean, how can you not be interested? This is, is what's going on around in my uh, mind. Uh, but I can understand. But still, I've got the impression, um, and perhaps that has something to do with the fact that these silos haven't been able to link up. Um, that the number of people who for some or other reason are not particularly interested in the First World War, especially young, the, among the younger generation, is big. And I, I'd say bigger than in Flanders, for instance. If you raise, I'm a history teacher, if you raise the subject in class, let's say half of your pupils on average, you know, will give you that look telling you, hmm, you could tell me more about this. I've got the impression that in France that number is, well, 
lower. I don't know if I should say significantly lower, but lower. And I, th- I, I regret that in a certain way. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I, I understand. Uh, also, like this, this, um, this profession has, has been coming up a lot in, in the conversation this evening. So a quick show of hands, who here is either a teacher or married to one or somewhat related to one? Wow. Married to one would never be one. Yeah. Exactly the same answer for me. <laughs> Married to one, yeah. It's not it's not that bad, guys. It's it's really not that bad. It's it's actually like um I, all right, so I, I rarely talk about work, but like my 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 students asked me, um, they're like, Do do you like your job? And I'm like, Of course I do. And they're like, Why? Like I was like, because like you I like never know what the hell you kids are going to give me on a day-to-day basis. And, and I, I just find that exciting. Like I'm, I'm here for it. And um, so, so that's awesome. I, I, I love this. I, I didn't realize this at, at the beginning of the conversation. So uh, we need to go to uh, uh, Bryn, who, who uh, thank you, sir, for, for waiting. Your, your, um, what, what do you think of when, when we get to World War I and, and um, when we think of World War I and, and the French army? I've got to say that most people have already covered most of the stuff that I would say. So bless you all for coming across with those things. I think um, I, 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 I specifically said I thought it was that the French army is, a, is misunderstood, misrepresented, and perceived inextricably and wrongly through the lens of the same institution in the Second World War. Um, it, it slews everything. Um, just, just a couple of observations on things that people have said today. Nobody's mentioned about the family history aspect of what seems to be driving a lot of interest in the First World War. There's very much a lot of stuff that's about individuals, about individual soldiers and their experience. And there was a big effort during the centenary to digitise a lot of sources that, that helped with that, from not just from the central sort of repositories of information, but from each of the depart, uh, the archives of the Departement. Uh, you know, so um, overall... I feel like we're benefiting a lot from that that process having gone on. So if if you want me to answer it another way, it's it's sort of like the French Army of the First World War has suddenly become a more accessible institution. You can mm. start to get at the source information, which might help you write the book that you want to write about the French Army in the First World War. Um not not you know, with the the um the regimental histories, the uh, journals, uh, you know, the, the the war diaries, if you like, uh, for each of the units, that they're they're all much more available than they were before. And although, you know, I I spoke to Alex before, uh, or we, we exchanged messages before this meeting about I wanted some advice about going to Vincennes at some point. You're not going to really get away with if you want to do really serious research without getting a um, documents that aren't digitised yet, but. But there is so much more that is available. And the, the internet is, is offering a lot of options around this, not only in terms of access to those things, but if, as, as I am not a great speaker of French, but learning all the time, there are tools to help you understand what's been written in French. So, you know, you go straight to Google Translate, you, you accept it's not going to be particularly accurate, but it points you towards a, a good idea of what, what is in that document, and then you buy common sense and your knowledge of military institutions. And that helps you understand 
just how much the French army in the First World War was a learning institution. It was a changing institution. It was driving a lot of doctrinal change in the Allied armies. It was where the ideas were coming from in many ways because you've got such a broad you know, breadth of experience going on, fighting in different conditions against new innovations by the enemy, that that's getting fed back. And it's where, you know, to be honest, some of the British innovations come from. They're, you know, they don't come as a starting point for the British army. They're nicked from the French. It's as simple as that. And, um, you know, the Americans have the same experience, learning very quickly from the French about what the war is really about. Not what they imagined it would be, but what it's really about. Um, it's it's the key to the Allied effort, I think, on the Western Front. Awesome. With France being the and, and the French Army being the the key to understanding the war and everything, what is the most underestimated object, person, or battle in the French Army? And we're going to go to Alex here. So I decided to take this, I've got a, a cool, put it as a two-parter. So one which is kind of very much at the bottom of the run and one which and one which is right at the top of the run. Um, so we'll start off right at the bottom and then we'll go to the top and you'll see what I mean when I start talking about it. So the first, the first one is talking about the postman. So very much your, when I say underestimated, when you say underestimated, it's underestimated because they're not spoken about now. But back then, they were hugely estimated by, by the troops, by the army, etc. So these people were basically your, your military policemen, uh, and, well, military, sorry, postmen. And they had the nickname of the Vagermest or Vagermeister, uh, which comes from the German to mean bag handler. Um, and... What were these people? Well, ultimately, they were the morale of your regiment, uh, of your units, etc. Why? Because if these individuals weren't receiving their posts, getting their parcels, that became a problem. And as I've spoken about previously, that then you, you could draw a line between post arriving and not arriving and the kind of the tone of letters, etc. and morale um, going down. But these individuals as well, it was a very dangerous job. Let's not let's not forget that these people were, were moving from the rear to the front lines. These people also were hanging out in the front lines. These people didn't have a rifle, but that did not mean that they were underestimated or looked down on by the by the troops. Actually, it was quite the opposite. They were seen as being kind of a little mascot in that sense. Um, of they all knew what time this individual would be turning up because for all of them, they knew the time of the postman's arrival. These people, they had their own little kind of, I don't want to call it a post office, but it was kind of like a little uh, a little hut that they would have in the second in their second line. And that would also be an area that people congregate and chat and have a, and have discussion. So again, it's this whole morale element. There's also a phrase that has has kind of, from the First World War has carried on in France, which is called boom, voilà le facteur. So boom, i.e. the bang, i.e. you've got that impression where it came from was maybe, oh, it's a letter that's coming through um, coming through somebody's letterbox. Well, no, actually, it comes from the First World War where 
often when the uh, postman turned up was when the daily the daily bombardment would start. So that's the <laughs> boom side. It's actually to do with the uh, with the bombardment. So well, the uh, the the German daily hate, I guess you know. Like, yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of strange. Again, it's that language element in terms of what it what it what it what it then how it's transformed itself and how kind of people have forgotten how those phrases actually first were started. But to give an idea how these people were actually highly estimated by their troops and just in general, is they actually had their own patron saint called Saint-Désir. And the catchphrase of Saint-Désir was, make sure there's always something for me, i.e. basically for you, the soldiers, make sure there's always a parcel, a letter, whatever, for me to take to take home to your loved ones etc so in summary for these guys it's kind of like it's number one it's hard to know how many actually there physically were or how many uh, died in service because actually a lot of them they didn't actually physically have written on their service record that they were a postman etc so it's actually very hard um to know actually the the, the numbers uh in regards to it but it's one of these where it's kind of ironic that they've kind of been forgotten about now when if you read letters, you read diaries, etc., these people are constantly mentioned. It's like the daily, it's the bread and butter of each soldier. They mention them daily, knowing when they're arriving, etc., etc. So again, for me, they're underestimated. Back then they weren't, but they, they've kind of been uh, forgotten individuals. And then you can also kind of cycle backwards and go the whole postal service as well because that also you could do a whole episode just about the postal service and how they stepped up um to to really go from where they were in 1914 in a total mess to be able to con- provide a more regular service than the royal mail sorry did i just say that uh, <laughs> um and then we can then jump forward to my second one which is joff it's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird one to go. Why why would you say jo- Joseph Joff is underestimated um, individual? Well, I th- I feel he is because of the persona that ev- you mentioned Joff and everyone goes oh Papa Joff oh he used to like to sleep and he used to like to eat is kind of the reaction you often you often get and I think that's something which I. Is not really what people should be thinking. Number one, if you kind of look at, at Joff where he came from, this guy was an engineer. So that's something that people don't really kind of uh, kind of either remember or, or think about, that he's an engineer. So he's appointed in 1911 uh, head of the army. The reality is, is that he was only appointed because he was a safe pair of hands. He was just seen as a safe pair of hands by the politicians everything in france always goes towards the political side making sure they are not a royalist they are not this etc etc so he was just seen as a safe pair of hands if it'd been 1914 they would never have appointed joff never they never in a million years would he have got the job but because it was 1911 he he got the job and then if you look at that even just before we start going into the war i've mentioned it before but his change in regards to the military service in July 19, 1913 is hugely important, i.e. increasing it from two to three years, added a, a large chunk of men in service ready to fight in, in August 1914. And that can't be underestimated. 
the same time, heavy artillery, he saw that heavy artillery was an issue in terms of, well, they didn't have as much as the German and it wasn't as good. So he wanted to kind of force that program to, to kind of be, to, to let's say, move, move it from that prototype phase to actually being part, to being used in the army. The problem again, and, and again, often with Joff, he hit the political issues in terms of the politicians kept on meddling with whatever he was doing. You had also the other element with Joffre as well. He started up tank programs, etc. So this is not somebody who was just sitting there eating and sleeping. He was he knew what he was doing. But also at the same time, this whole Papa Joff thing is yes, okay, but the guy was ruthless. <laughs> The guy was pretty, pretty, pretty ruthless. He was, before the war started, he was bit by bit reshaping the army, putting commanders in place that he wanted. But he very quickly saw in August 1914, a lot of his generals that he had were just pen pushers or what, or as he liked to call them, peacetime generals. So, I mean, there was a, there's something I read recently between August 14 and December 14, they sacked 162 generals and colonels in the French army. I mean, Which that's they... not somebody who is not reacting to the situation or the issues put in front of him. Again, you can argue that right. some of them, they shouldn't have been sacked. But then when you look at people like, uh, what is it, General? I think it was General Soret, uh, who went missing for 24 hours, and then when they found him again, he didn't even know where his army was. I mean... People like that, you know that you need to you need to be showing them showing them the door. But or or uh, uh, limoge as the, yeah, the word yeah. point, right? So it's good. It, 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 when you look at that, and then you also think that, and again, this comes back to something we just said earlier about the French army and learning. Two weeks into the war, the French army, in terms of the from uh, uh, GQG, so the the French HQ. Two weeks in, they were already sending around to all of their commanders what they'd learned, all the learnings that had happened in terms of all the things that had gone wrong, what they should stop doing, and what they needed to improve on. And that was just after two weeks, sending that. So again, showing that they're being obviously rather proactive. Again, yes, you can always say that with Joff, there was things that he got wrong. I mean, he could have, put, for example, put the steel helmets in earlier. Um, he had the opportunity to do, to do that a lot earlier than when they did. He famously said that what's the point in having uh, a helmet because the war the war won't last long enough for the for the use of them. Um, you can also say his feud that he had with Gallieni didn't really kind of help things as well. But the reality is he was the right man at the right time, and there's no I don't think anyone would really really question that, especially after what happened. Uh, in 1914 on the Marne but ultimately I just think he's one of these individuals that gets very much overlooked you think French generals most people straight away go for Foch just because he was there at the end game rather than the guy who was there at the start when actually things could have gone very very wrong that's fascinating man um so a couple of things Alex like you and you and I are gonna um clearly have to do uh, a, a discussion episode on um the french postal system during world war one and on and on joffre like this is the first time that i've 
that, that me personally, that I've seen this, this view of Joff and I, um, yeah, I've always looked at it as, as the Papa Joff way. And, um, I, I grudgingly have to look at him differently now. Like, huh. All right. I don't know. It'd be interesting what the others, others on here feel as well. But for yeah. me, uh, that's the kind of, What's that's how he's been painted. And, and I think he didn't, it didn't help post-war, didn't help as well um, with, with someone like Joff. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what the others feel as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Please, anyone. Yeah, Joff, I mean, Joff took over, as Alex says, 1911, after the Second Moroccan crisis, and he realised the state of the French army. But between 1911 and August 14, he's got three years to change everything. He put things in place, but the French, bottom line is the French army wasn't ready in 14. It's not Joff's fault. It's the fact that the war came when it came when it did. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things like the the key French formation is the Army Corps. France is divided into 21 or 22 military regions. Each produces an Army Corps. The French only had, uh, prior to Joff coming in place, two training areas that were core size. So the principal formations couldn't get trained. I mean, he he proposed that every corps had its own training area. Uh, so and they could train regularly to be up to speed. The politicians who control the purse strings, and you've got to remember there, the politicians and the, the army from the start of the, the century was in a bad way, riven by internal strife, the Dreyfus affair, anti-clericalism, Masonic influences. The politicians didn't really take notice of them. There's no one to fight the corner until Joff came along, really, uh, and started shake, uh, shaking a few heads together. Uh, all sorts of things were passed, but never came to being because a politician prevaricated. And it's them that produced the money to provide all these sort of things. Uh, and they were uh, in the area of the Belle Epoque. Who's going to spend money on the army when they're bickering among themselves and things like that? Politicians look after the people that elect them uh, and they spend money on other things. Joff was the first person to come along and say, right, look at the German army. They're... Up until 1900, we were ahead of them. Now they're pulling away from us. We need to do something. And Joff was a man that, that did that or started doing that. I, I find it interesting that when we're talking about Joff's ruthlessness, nobody's focusing on the fact that he set the tone for the French army in the latter part of 1914 when it was summary executions for anybody who didn't obey orders instantly. Um, and he owned that. He he drove that process from the top. Uh, and I think it, it's understandable in many ways. France was in a crisis and the army was needed to act in the way that he wanted. He wanted absolute control of that army. But but it does lead to these situations where, you know, people are just shot, basically, for um, without really any, any play at a court-martial, even. You know, they're, they're, there's just a... a, a, a a draconian regime running through the French army at that point, which which comes from the very top. Just coming on that one in terms of how that was, in a way, stopped, because that was, um, I know in another question I talk about Poincaré not being a particularly person who's not thought of much about being in the war, even though he's French president for the whole war. Um, but he was the one who actually stepped in and said, I will have the final say on executions. 
and the, the sort of general diminishing of actual carried out executions that through 1915 was a lot to do with the fact that he would refuse around 90% of the um, proposed executions. He, he basically stopped all of those. So, yeah, um, and on, on the Joffre one, I mean, I'm not as enthusiastic maybe as Alex is about him as, uh, as a person and as a leader, um, I think in 1914 he was the right, right man on the on the spot because he didn't uh, panic. He didn't he didn't do what many generals would have done and probably just lost it at that point. Um, I mean, you've got to go right. You've got to, even seasons people all the way through the war. I mean, Hegel was lost it in 18. He was very near to losing it. Uh, and 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 there you are in a very novel situation, 1914, and suddenly he's be everybody's retreating like anything, and he he doesn't just retreat and then keep retreating and think well, what we're going to. He plans how it's going to be rebuffed and keeps his nerve, and that's what they needed. So I really with Alex there in terms of he was the man for the moment at that particular point in time. I think then when you get into 1915, uh, less so. And uh, through into 1915 and 16, I think it um, his total domination of the politics of the war, I think, was too great. And I think at that, that, at that point, things we could go on a long time discussing that one. But I think at that point, that's when the French, in a sense, political level wasn't strong enough to say at some point a little bit further down the line. I don't think he's really now the man for the role. Um but where it would have gone from there is another question. But that's that's a that's a totally different question. But uh, he certainly is maligned, far too maligned um, as a person and as a leader, because as a leader he is amongst the great. And for me, that's all to do with fourteen, and that because he showed himself an absolutely great leader with first man. You can't you can't deny that. Uh, other elements of his leadership you can put into question, but that was him at his very very best. And he should, and he, and he, he deserved his accolade of being in the, um, because when it came to the the victory procession in 1919, the Arc de Triomphe and all the rest of it, he was there alongside Foch, and I think that was quite correct. Interesting, interesting. I, it'd be interesting to ask everybody if they can think of another general who had the fate of his nation in his hands and solely owned that during the course of the First World War. I'm looking at Bart, and he, is there a Belgian general, the king fall in that category? I mean, uh, certainly, yeah. you know, if you're fighting overseas in the British army, it's not an issue. Same with Pershing for the Americans. But when it comes to, when it comes to fighting on your own soil, sorry, Bart, you were going to say something. No, um, every, all attention goes to the, uh, uh, the big boss, the big chief, which was, which was a king. But, uh, which is uh, an element that is certainly underestimated is his staff work, uh, the generals of his staff. Um, I have the impression, but I haven't really looked into this quite deep, but I have the impression that he followed examples uh, from other armies in how should I organize my staff. And then, well, logistically, I think he had the, the easiest part of them all. He, everything that came from the Channel Coast went uh, far up north, so as as long as material for the British and the Ypres salient arrived, that meant that the Belgian stuff would arrive as well. So, um, yeah, he did. Um, but it's interesting to see how they copied 
well, good practice from other armies. And curiously, uh, I had a similar experience once visiting an excavation site uh, on the Iser Front, the southern Iser Front. Um, what was being excavated was a line of bunkers, a second defense line. And the archaeologists themselves were surprised to see that the Belgian engineers clearly took over good um, things that worked from other armies. He, uh, I clearly remember an archaeologist pointing at stuff, saying, look, this is something that was copied from the French. And if you look over there, then you could clearly see something copied from the British. So I think, guess, Belgians are smart. But while, while we've got you here, what's, what's your, um, what is your most uh, un underestimated object, person, or, or battle in the French army, sir? Well, uh, I have the, uh, the honor of uh, being an acquaintance of uh, Mr. Rob Thompson. So to me, logistics. Um, if you see how many men um, needing how much materiel, was transported successfully in 1918 by the French army to do to deliver the blows that the coalition warfare asked them to, to deliver. Um, well, I think that was, in my opinion, uh, one of the uh, most amazing things they've uh, realized in the First World War. All right. So I, I think from here, uh, talking about what, what Bart just talked about, I think we should jump to Jim, because your idea, if I may, was that uh, French manufacturing did it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, I, I, uh, whenever I was on, I was going to say, I'll just it's following on from Bart at the other end of the process. The logistics got the stuff to the front and got the stuff actually supplied and so on. But it has to be created. Uh, the shells have to be created. The guns and, and the artillery have to be created. And you've got to remember that France have lost large chunks of their land. And the, the land they lost was their manufacturing base and their coal mining base. So the two things they had to sort out was, A, we've got to manufacture almost in the same, almost bringing in the wrong war in a sense, in the, same, the way the Russians had to move all their factories back to the east. They had to sort of re, rebuild their, their manufacturing capability. At the same time, also organised getting coal in, which a lot of it had to be imported. But there's a whole financial and, and logistics complication to that as well, which goes with shipping and all that. And there's, there's all that. Logistics then goes to the other side of the logistics of actually getting the raw materials into France to do the manufacturing that they did. Um, but their manufacturing process in the second in the first world war was amazing. Uh, what they they had 164 motorized vehicles at the beginning of the war. They had 98,000 by the end. They basically had motorized the vast amount of their artillery. We the British hadn't. Uh, the, the main reason that they did that is that they ran out of horses. It was more of a need than anything else. But eventually, when the French army, it was all being run on petrol. As far as they were concerned, petrol was the thing to do. They had to, over two and a half thousand Renault tanks at the end of the war, by the end of the war. And that's only from, that's within, the, the first ones only appeared in around, what, March or so, 18, February, March 18. Two and a half thousand tanks by the end. Light tanks, simple tanks, but they did the job that they they recognised it was necessary. Um, that You can throw statistics out like that about what they, what they are able to do. But that and people talked earlier on about the fact that they actually were able to move the... Oh, it's about Joffre wanting the artillery. He wanted it. It had to be created. 
So that the 3,000 or so short F-155s have to be, you know, heavy guns have to be created, which were created by the end of the war. They built, was it, I've got the numbers down here, so remind me, they got 27,000 75s, you know the 75, you know, the, the field artillery. They only had about eight, 9,000 at the beginning of the war. They only had about eight, 9,000 at the end of the war. They had to create 75,000 because that was the men, that was the many, how many they lost during the war. That's the replacement process. But at least they kept the 75s in process and there. And then interesting, most of them from a British and everything else point of view, um, Renault created 92,000 air engines, a quarter of which went to other people, not to the French. 12,000 air engines went to the British. The British were actually using French air engines in their aircraft because they weren't producing enough, because the French produced it for them. I mean, from an industrialised nation like the British, to actually accept that they, they're actually having things from the French uh, was quite something. And then finally, the Americans. The Americans arrived, but to get the men over to France, it was a matter of, well, we'll bring all the men, but we won't bring anything else. So whose rifles and whose artillery and whose aircraft do they use all the way through in 18? French. The vast majority of the aircraft they flew were French. The vast majority of the, any vehicle, the, they, they, the tanks were all French Renaults. The, the artillery was mostly French, nearly all French. Um, they supplied the, 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 with almost everything that they, the Americans needed that they couldn't carry on board themselves as a man when they arrived here. Um, so for me, that is something that I think needs, it goes along with the logistics. They're, they're the two areas that everybody forgets about when they're talking about manpower. Um, that you know, we talk about the, Andy talked about the fact that the French manpower and how they managed to do it with just 40 million and have that army. But they didn't only have those millions of people in the army, they had millions of men and women, obviously, um, actually creating and manufacturing. That they were really were a nation that full bodied went into the war, and they were very much it was a total war for them from 15 onwards, uh, in the way that they used to they talk about it in the Second World War, total war in the fact that the whole of the nation were basically working towards some form of victory. And that, for me, is something that's, um, it's, it's not, like logistics, it's pushed to one side. Of, oh, yeah, they, they got tanks, they got guns, they got things, but actually looking at where all that came from and the decision-making on a political level to make that happen and the will of the nation to make it happen is something that I think is remarkable. Yeah. Just to back up what Jim's saying now about the loss of production, it's not just the coal. In the Longwebrie Basin, that provided 85% of French iron ore production, and they lost that by the end of August. Not only had they lost it, the Germans, in effect, had gained it, because Germany was, German was self-sufficient in coal production, but what it lacked was iron ore. It only had 50% of its own iron ore production. That switched the balance. And the fact that the, the French could get around that and produce all these things that use metal and it's absolutely amazing. We have a shell shortage in the UK, but we've not been invaded or lost any of our iron ore production, yet we can't keep it. The French managed to circumvent that and get around it. It's, it's the great feat of the First World War. I agree with you on that. Well, look at the production on the Adrian helmet. Look at that. That, that was only kind of started production right at the end of May, and by December, they had three million. I mean, and how many? How many were the Brits uh, 
doing of the old Brody helmet? Was it like it was it was it was it was a very small number of months during that period? Probably now Renault find it difficult to create a few cars every month. But anyway, <laughs> Jim, thank uh, thank you. Like I I um. Oh, oh my God. Like there, there's so much going on in, in this talk right here. Like, um, I'm, I'm not good on the spot. Like, uh, so I'll, I'll have some comments like, like later on, pr- probably tomorrow. Um, and also I, I think that Calvados is like really going to work. So, um, but I like, there's just so much that's, that's happening here. That's, um, that's fantastic. So I, I want to go from, from your talking about the French manufacturing, I'd like to go to Rich, who, who actually brings up the fact that for him, the most underestimated object uh, are, are two objects, the, the 75 millimeter cannon and the, the Renault um, F, uh, FT tank, um, as well as the Battle of the, the Soissonnet and, and, and the Orc. After Rich, I'd like to go uh, to to Steve. If you could, uh, I, I know you had some things to add on to, to Rich's comments, and then to uh, to Bryn, if, um, if if that's okay. So, uh, Rich, if you would tell us about the uh, the French seventy five and the uh, yeah yeah. So I mean, it, 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 I was going to interrupt Jim when he was going on about the about the French seven, 75 when he started. Like, he's still in my thunder, Jim. Still in my th- but it it was. And remains an incredible, incredible gun, um, innovative of its time. It was a 19th century gun, effectively. It was right towards the very end of, of the 1800s. But, you know, it was it could fire almost as rapidly as, as, as the infantry. You, you know, it could, I did a bit of research on it, but it, it could do 15 aimed rounds a minute, not for very long, it could do up to 30, it says, up to 30. Whether this was ever done, I'm not, I'm not sure. It said it could do up to 30 over a very short period. But I'm guessing the barrel would, would overheat pretty pretty rapidly. But it was certainly one that, that, that the Germans, Germans really feared it. They didn't like it at all. It was super versatile, obviously hugely mobile because it's a, it's a piece of light, light artillery. But extremely, extremely effective, and you know, it, it is no doubt that, despite what lots of people think, it's the artillery really which has the dominant part in most battles. Even the ones where it's more mobile towards towards nineteen eighteen or or very early on in nineteen fourteen, still the artillery which has plays a a huge role, and. It's it's probably not in some ways as, as glamorous as some of those bigger artillery pieces, you know, those big howitzers, but it still has a huge influence in the in the you know in every battle that's that's fought in the uh, in the Great War, um, and so that would be my first one. And the second one is um, is the Renault FT tank, which which again Jim Jim Stomach Thunder mentioned mentioned as well. Um, you know, we're in 2022. You see all of those tanks being being um, sent across to Ukraine. They don't look obviously they've got longer barrels, but they don't look hugely different from the Renault FT. It was a huge, a huge innovation at the time with its rotating turret. Um, 
more mobile than, than any of the other tanks, faster than the other tanks. I mean, some of them were like crawling along at, uh, you know, a couple of two, three miles an hour. This one, this one was, was at almost running pace. It was, it was, it was fast. It was mobile, more lightly armored than the, um, than the Sanchaman and, and, uh, and Schneider tanks. But, um, Certainly, when it came towards the the latter part of, of 1918, it really started to um, really started to come in into its own, and it, it played like you say there was what several thousand thousand made. I mean, it's interesting as well that that um, almost on it on its debut, the French realised the other two models that they had, the Saint-Germain and the and the Schneider. They were they were they were good, but they were nothing compared to this this little um, midget tank because it no because you could make you could probably make three uh, Renault tanks for one or maybe maybe even four for one one of these one of those huge Leviathans and um, you know a crew of just two, which again has huge advantages. No, you, you, if 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 the crew was crew are killed, it's it's only two. Well, it's two people, but it's only two people. The other tanks that you know, well, the, the the you know that they've got what 12, 16 people in some of these tanks. So again, it's it's a lot easier to replace them. Obviously, you've got the material that you have to replace, but you also got the the trained tank tank teams as well. Um, but they they suffer from some of the mechanical failures that. The, the other tanks um, also suffer from. So a lot of them never make the start line on battles, but that's happening to the British. That's certainly happening, happening to the French, but they are almost certainly the most reliable of the, of the tanks that, 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 that debuted in the first world war. And as I say, you know, it's a model that has pretty much stayed I would say unchanged. It's obviously innovated in the in, in the hundred years since then. But you know, you would you would recognise a, a Renault FT just as you recognise a, a tank tank from today. So those would be the, my two sort of pieces of French kit, French equipment, French technology, and then the the other thing that's sort of underestimated, and and this is what what I've written about and I'm writing about at the moment is. The Battle of Soissonnet and the Orc. Nobody's have ever heard of this battle, even me. And um, it's definitively the, the turning point of the Great War. Um, July 1918. It's the first part of the Second Battle of the Marne. Um, and it's really over a very short period when the, the, the Germans launched their fifth uh, offensive of 19. 1918 on the 15th of August. Three days later, the Allies, um, their, the five armies or, or sort of four armies of the of the French, four French armies, led by Montjean's um, 10th Army. They they have the aim of severing the the sort of jugular vein of the of the salient. So it's, it's this is great big bulge in the line that the, that the Germans are created from end of May. And they're trying to pinch it off, cut it off, slice, slice, you know, close the neck of the pocket, as the as the French like to call it, and and um, and cut off two two German armies, the Germans Seventh Army and Ninth Army. Um, without without this this battle, without this victory, 
Um, uh, you would never have had uh, an, an Amion because the Germans, they were already moving heavy, heavy artillery up towards Flanders to start Operation Hagen. Um, and it's unlikely that you we would have seen the end of the war in night, very unlikely would have seen the war end of the war in 1918, because when the when the battle started, they were certainly thinking about the war going on well into 1919 and even into 1920. And it wasn't actually until um, early August time or very late July that, that anybody even contemplated that the war could be over that year. So um, it's it's not well known. Very few people have written about it um, in either French or English, for that matter. Um, I'm thankful to Michael Nyberg. We'll talk about that in a second on some of the books. Um, he's written the best, uh, com- most comprehensive um, book about about the battle and um, had the pleasure and uh, privilege of meeting him once as well. So that was that was rather nice. So that would be my my three things rambling on a bit, but uh, but certainly the last one, Sassanay and the Orc, um, you know, it's hugely influential. It, it, to me, it's far more important than, than a D-Day, far more important than um, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, uh, for example, because it is such a pivotal turning point. Uh, and there are very few of those in a in a particular war way in a, in in any war way you see it. The fortunes change so dramatically over such a short period of time. Steve, you you had some points that you wanted to yeah, just to pick up on the on the seventy five particularly. Yep. Uh, as uh, Rich says, aim rounds fifteen rounds a minute, but you can only do it in short bursts. If you later on in the war, where they're firing from static positions and they had to fire a longer barrage, it was four to six rounds, or as as Rich said, it overheated. But that's not what it was designed for. That was designed in at the end of the turn of the century. The French were expecting mobile, rapid, offensive warfare. All their weapon system were designed around that basis. If you have a big gun that fires a big shell, it's slow. It can't keep up. So what do you do? You get a smaller gun that fires lots of shells in a quick time. That's basically the principle behind the 75. So it's wrong that people should criticise it because it's no good for trench warfare. Uh, You know, it's like buying a a Porsche Carrera and just using it for your supermarket shop. Just because you can't get your groceries in the boot doesn't make it a naff car. It's a superb car. It's just not what it was designed for. Uh, That said, the friendly said as the war went on, what else could he use it for? There were all these 75s. Gas, the rapid rate of fire, it's a great, it was their principal mechanism for delivering gas shells. Wire cutting, same sort of thing, the trajectory they made it ideal for wire cutting. So they adapted it, and that goes back to the French learning process. They've got this gun, we've got loads of them, and how to make it, it's a fantastic gun. What else can we use it for? But going back to something else Rich said, it was the one French weapon at the beginning of the war that the Germans were wary of. Because even then they got caught out. Uh, the Battle of the Frontier is the only sort of encounter where perhaps you could argue that the French won uh, on a casualty count uh, was Mercy Le Hope, uh, the Third Army. Uh, just like Wellington, reverse slope position, they put all their artillery on there. The Germans came over the plateau and got annihilated. Uh, as it happens, they then had to withdraw, so they lost the battle on that sort of definition. Elsewhere, uh, 
<coughs> Battle of Verton and the French Fourth Corps, the Eighth Division attacking through Verton, Seventh Division attacking through Et. The how the French arranged their corps artillery. There were a regiment uh, of artillery per division, and that was a regiment of three groups of three batteries of four guns, so 36 guns, and the corps artillery, which was four groups. So in total, the corps had 120 guns. At those two battles, the corps artillery was principally put to fire down the middle of the two battles to keep the German forces separate. The French, what the French thing did lack in, in Twizzlebot was initiative. For most of the day, the, the 44th Regiment stood there and had fired a shot, searching for targets through the fog and the mist. As it happened, they intervened more on the 8th Division side, while the 7th Division was getting badly mauled at Et. But suddenly, one group, and you can, I forget which group it was of the 44th Regiment, spotted some Germans in a clearing at maximum range. And the battery, if you read the thing, they opened fire, the battery opened fire, and as luck would have it, got the range spot on with the first shot. Within a couple of minutes, they destroyed that German formation. And then the war driver says, oh, we found some German targets, we sort of let rip, picked them, and then we cleared off. And that was their war diary for the day. What they don't know, until they read the German sources, is that was headquarters of the German Corps attacking net, and they killed the colonel and a lot of his uh, HQ staff. And that's one of the reasons why it had the Germans were on the point of surrounding the 7th Division suddenly withdrew because this one battery or this, this group of batteries that suddenly opened fire, spotted a target and virtually annihilated it. Just an example, a battery of 75 firing shrapnel shells can deliver a 17,000 ball burst of an area of four hectares in a minute. So if you get your target spot on, you're going to do some damage and the Germans are wary of it. After the battles, one of the reasons why the French were overrun when they retreated is they positioned the, the 75s to cover the retreat. So, for example, speaking of Verton and Et, there's a hill about three miles to the west of Verton, and they positioned three groups of artillery on there, which covered the retreat of the rest of it. You go along the valley, the valley of the Cher, uh, you go on the next village, Acuvier, and in the distance you can see the fortress of Montmédée. If anyone's seen it, it's, it's a Vauban-esque citadel on top of like a rocky outcrop that dominates the valley. Now, the Germans didn't know there was, there was no guns of any worth up there, but it looks impressive, and they're reluctant to advance. And it's purely and simply because they're wary of the French 75 as an artillery place and the damage it can, done, uh, it, it can do. So that's what I wanted to add. Awesome. All right. All right. And then Bryn. Um, I'm very much struck by the, the, the talk about manufacturing, the, you know, the French um, ability to manufacture during the course of the war and how quickly they up their game and, you know, up production of the war equipment. And I think that particularly applies in relationship, as we've talked about, to the mechanisation of the army, in particular the lorry. Um, at the start of the war, France has an excellent rail network, which allows them to deliver troops in the through the core structure to the places where they're expected to mobilize for fighting in the areas where they're expected to meet Germans. Um, it works very well, can continue to have a, you know, an efficient and effective rail network, which gets developed um, with the um, means to deliver people both to and from the limited leave that they get during the war. 
But at the same time, the war's changing, and what you actually have is this need to move troops laterally, to move troops and equipment laterally, um, which is which is all about um, meeting the challenges of the, that the Germans are bringing to the battlefield in 1918. So with the, the range of offences that take place across along the whole of the Western Front, if you like, in 1918, you need to get stuff there. Almost the first is with the mostest is what's going to actually, but responding to to the situation as it arises. Um, lorries deliver troops very quickly to where they're needed, but they also deliver guns. Um, and we're now talking about the French guns, the you know the the, the one five fives and uh, the bigger capacity guns, which are needed in support of infantry. Um, the 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 ability to move troops laterally is absolutely critical, and it's something that the lorry enables. Of course, the lorry's role is also important at Verdun. It's the it's the means whereby stuff's taken down the Wasacre. Um, uh, the, the one road that can bring supplies in and, uh, into the uh, into the area around the citadel. Um, so, I, I, upping their game with with motorised transport is a hugely important part of the French effort in the war. Fantastic. Any any thoughts to uh, uh, add to this, um, gentlemen? Before we move on to our, our final question uh, for the evening. Uh, to agree with Bryn there in terms of the ability to actually strategically use that facility in the fact that they're heavy guns. Foch's idea in 18 was to be striking in different places, but he had to support that by having the ability to move, the, not spend three weeks moving the heavy artillery from A to B, but just a week. And that needed that motorised ability to do it. And he lent a lot of that motorised ability to the British to move stuff and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's a, it, it was a game changer. Yeah, definitely on Britain. And then, and then moving just unfathomable amounts of stuff in 1918. You know, whole armies effectively are moving place A to place B over a very short period of time. The roads are still not great. You know, there's lots of little country roads that don't really cope with the capacity. But, you know, they're, they're using their railways hugely effectively um, and, and they're managing to do it. They're really managing to do it, you know, in the really difficult circumstances. But, but the, yeah, the sheer volume of stuff they're moving over their roads is, is, is quite something to behold. Of course, a particular driver in that process is the fact that you know, the experience of the French is very often some of the key railway lines that run laterally are cut by the German advance. So at various places, you cannot get supplies through by rail. So you've got to come up with another means. Um, so mechanisation is driven by a response to to that issue, if you like. And I think that that's also, you know, a sign that there's an understanding of what's needed and a, a means to, to get around the problem is, a, is the critical thing. I think rail, the rails actually coming, you can't build railways very quickly, not main no. gate. And I think it was, it was getting to capacity. Uh, I think yeah. one of the other saviors of having the lorries was that they literally couldn't move stuff as quickly. I mean, one of the things in 18 about not actually... Uh, carrying out earlier any offensive down in the Laurent area for the French was that they couldn't actually move the stuff down there by rail and they hadn't got the capacity to move it by truck because it was all doing other things but the railway couldn't cope with it so they postponed it 
it was being put back into mid-November, which it, therefore it never happened, uh, because of transport, because of rail transport actually being over capacity. Um, and we saw we see that in 17 around the sort of arguments between the British and the French about rail. The rail was getting towards capacity um, because it was, yeah, it was great, built for the start and, all, and moving all the troops for mobilisation. But then when you've got these, it's then when the goods start having to be moved, millions of shells having to be moved, as well as troops moved from A to B. Uh, it just, yeah, and therefore the lorry, yeah, brings totally on that in terms of, the Allies, in terms of the French and partly the British, were, were becoming mechanised and the Germans were not. And that that is something that's not always mentioned in terms of the definitive differences between the armies at the end of the war, when it becomes a... It also, it also, comes, to the, it also comes to the fact of all of this you can put in one big umbrella, which is the French innovation in terms of innovating throughout the war and finding solutions to problems. Sometimes they did it in a very, let's say, medieval, very rustic way. But in these kind of ways, looking at just in, in logistics, they just they just went in the direction that they had to go and they had no kind of impression of going, no, we can't do it like this way. It needs, it's always been done this way. It's learning on the job and being innovative. And I think those two words kind of sum up the French army throughout from 14 to 18. There's no reason, there's no... And I think that sums up why somebody, for example, it's Goya in his book, says that the French army is the most modernised or the most, the more, I think he uses a weird English turn of phrase, more modernised than any of the other um, armies that fought throughout the First World War. And I think what we're saying here very much sums it up. So gentlemen, we're, we're at the, about the two hour mark and um, I'm going to, I'm going to skip a couple of questions um, and we'll, we'll have to hit a, a, a part two, uh, hopefully even a part three, if, if everyone is, is okay with that. Um, it, it, Jim, was that you shaking your head? Oh, 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 you're, you're muted, sir. So. No, it was me saying no problem at all. That's what it's. Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> that doesn't that's shake you. I was like, well, I hear you. Okay, I understand. Uh, <laughs> but no, cool. So, um, it, just because you you folks are in are in um, are over in Europe uh, and everything, I'm, I'm going to move on to the last question of the evening, um, and we'll reconvene for for part two. So, last question, and Alex just perfectly opened this up. Was what are some of the best books? for people to read, um, to start, or to enhance their understanding of the French army and where they should visit? Uh, or also, where should they visit if they if you want to get a sense of understanding the French army in, in World War I? Um, we'll go to, we'll start with, with, um, with, with Alex here, since you were just bringing up that book. Uh, I think the one you were talking about is um, Flesh and Steel. Right, that's that's the one. So, I mean, in terms of books, there's, I mean, there's there's lots of, but well, there's lots of books and there's not lots of books. If you see what I mean, there's there's a good number to, that you can read through in English, but there's not as many as you'd potentially like to have. Um, one of the one of the ones I'd like to have is one on uh, on Edouard de, de Castelnau, but that that will be for that will be for part two. Um, but 
in terms of a book to firstly just get you into just uh let's say understanding of well, what are the basics what how was a french army kind of um put together so what was a regiment uh what did they wear just the basics of it um the french poilu book by ian Su- is it subna is that how you pronounce the name subna I never, I, I never, I'm, I'm never great with pronunciations. Sumner, um, perfect. Ah, oh, so I got it right. Yes, um, it's easy. It's an easy read because it's 61 pages long, so it's not going to take you a huge amount of time. But it gives you a nice way, a simple, a simple way in. Um, I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder too much on too many others. So one that I would also recommend, just because um, there's a lot of false information around 1917 and there's a lot of a lot of things that need to kind of be let's say corrected and breaking point of the french army by uh david murphy is a very good kind of summary of 1917 around sort of obviously chemin de dam it gives a lot of information also around um around nivelle and how nivelle let's say he he hung around like a bad smell <laughs> <laughs> there we go um it's very much that it gives you a really good impression around Nivelle and how then P- Pitain took over what Pitain did but just how the process of getting rid of Nivelle how kind of long-winded that was and then finally you've got Goya Goya has written many books but the one that has been translated into English is Flesh and Steel I would say this is more advanced because it goes into some serious detail, but it gives you a really good understanding of the French army pre-war in terms of their methodologies, what they were thinking, even way back uh, post-1870, uh, and their process of how they got there, talking about sort of grand, uh, grand maison, etc., and how all of those thinkings came about, how then bringing how Joffre then was trying to change things. And then throughout then the war, what changes did they, the French do? I, the innovations. So there's a lot. When you read that book, you really start to understand how innovative uh, the, French, the French army were, were, was. And so that's more your advanced stage. In terms of where to go and visit, I'll do one. Uh, because as I always like to bring it back to just the individual soldiers and getting an, an impression of their daily life, for me, the place that really, there's nowhere else really like it, is Mount de Massage and the association trenches there. Why? Because it's it's a recreation of the lines that were already previously there but there's so much detail that's gone into it. There's a lot of things that have been found in the area in terms of old um, old water bottles, lots of old equipment that's then been put back in place. But it gives you a real impression of how those front lines, the second lines, how the communication, how all of that worked. Because it it gives you an impression. You can literally go there and go, wow, this is what it was like. Compared to when you go to somewhere like, so let's say, it's somewhere like Vimy Ridge with your concrete, uh, with your concrete sandbank, uh, sandbag, you get less of the impression of really what it what it was like. Here, you really do, and especially when you get 
uh, one of the members taking you around because they talk also about the challenges of maintaining it. Again, something that rarely gets talked about is, oh yeah, the trenches were dug, but guess what? There was a huge amount of maintenance that needed to be done, especially when you're in the Champagne region. Around there, the soil, because of the nature of the soil in terms of the that whitey, chalky, clay type of soil, at winter, that was horrendous because that used to freeze. And with that, when it when it froze and then it when it thawed again, it then would basically disintegrate and turn into a liquid, a liquid mud, which then meant the maintenance of just trenches around there was a, just a daily, a daily job. And they talk about it themselves and they spend most of their November, December, January time just making sure the whole thing doesn't fall on top of itself. Wow. Yeah, I can. Um, I just visited uh, Mont de Massige back in July. Um, it's an incredible site. It's also uh, it's one that's still uh, regularly, well, fairly regularly, I think, like still turns up remains of um, French soldiers, and and they list the spot. Like you know, we we found two here, we found one here, um, and and accompanied by photos of of the, the bones being unearthed and everything. So it's it's. Um, I know this isn't quite the appropriate word, but it's a it's a a living site like where you very much see like what what the World War One experience was was like for the French army. Um, I mean, it's literally living because when you go to the car park, um, there is a mound. I don't know if the mound is still. I went in August time, and they may have they may have got rid of it. But in the middle of their car park, there's a little mound with a load of uh, barbed wire on top of it. When you when you look at it, you think it's like, why have we got a random mound in the in the middle of a, of a car park? Well, actually, below that is the remains of a French mine, which still has all of uh, the explosives right at the bottom of that of that shaft. Oh boy! <laughs> and so, when you talk about a living site, it literally is because you've got all of this still there that sits there. And for example, just that that area there, they don't want to move the explosives because it's so unstable. Yeah. So there you go. Another reminder that, 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 you know, the war is still very much present. I'm going to read Bart. Uh, Bart, uh, unfortunately, they had, had to leave early. So I'll, I'm just going to uh, read his suggestions. And then from there, we'll we'll jump to uh, uh, Bryn. So what Bart suggested was he suggested testimonials. Uh, Henri Barbus, um, I hope I'm saying that correctly, um, under fire which is this book here. Of course, you've got uh, Dorgelet or Louis Bartas, who wrote the very famous book, now uh, Poilu, which was, I say famous as in it's been popular in the last few years. Um, Bart writes that a must for every first World War enthusiast is a visit to the battlefields around Verdun, um, which to quote Richard Holmes, is the saddest place on earth. Um, Vauquois, won't fail to impress anyone. The Argonne, the Champagne in front, the Mont de Massige, the Chemin des Dames, and do some walking, preferably in the footsteps of the Poilus of April 1917. So don't just stick to the Caverne du Dragon. Notre Dame de Lorette, um, in between Ypres and Arras, won't fail to impress anyone either. Further east, uh, from Verdun, Les Epages, the Saint-Miel salient, and things like uh, Hartsmann-Villakov um, or La Lange in um, the Vosges Mountains. Wherever you go, choose your company wisely. 
Bart suggested, a good guide is worth at least 10 books, I think. So those are Bart's ideas. Bryn, if you would, sir. So now I've got to recommend books as opposed to Battlefield. Uh, <laughs> it set me up nicely there, hasn't he? Um, anything by the late Elizabeth Greenhalgh, but particularly the French Army and the uh, First World War book that she did in the Cambridge University series is well worth a read. Um, and I, I would consider that, although it's an academic book in many ways, it's accessible and it co- gives very good coverage. It's certainly the book that got me fired up. Um, Robert Doughty's Pyrrhic Victory, uh, about the French, French strategy and operations in the First World War. Um, the Osprey booklets by Ian Sumner that uh, Alex has mentioned, the, there are two of them, but both of them are, have got value and things like that. If you're interested in equipment then and you want to spend an awful lot of money, because once you get into this, you'll soon be spending money on books like there's no tomorrow, get the two Verlag Militaria volumes on the French Army's equipment and things like that. They're, they're reduced at the moment, but um, <laughs> but even so, they're hideously expensive. But um that leads me on to recommendations for places to visit. So I'm not going to go with places on Battlefield because I think everywhere that everybody's recommending is are, are very, very good. Um, so I'm going to give you um, a slightly different take on this. If you go to Paris, Musée de l'Armée at uh, Les Invalides is definitely somewhere that you should visit. And a lot of their collection features within the Verlag books that I just mentioned. Um, I also took the opportunity to go to the Musée de la Grande Guerre at Meaux, which is... It's achievable from Paris on a train. Um, there's a bus that runs you up to the, the museum. Uh, you can do it in a day. And if you do, you can go from Garde l'Est and you can see the painting, uh, The Depart of the Qualies of um, August 1914, which is absolutely magnificent, even though most people rush by it as they get rush to get their TGVs. Um, and well, finally, they didn't, depart, they didn't all depart by taxis. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not on the 2nd of August 1914, but possibly later. Um, there's also the Historial de la Grande Guerre at Peron, which always amuses me is why did the French build a museum about the Somme in Peron when all this stuff took place further north? Of course it didn't. It's, you know, it's not just about the British yet again. Um, it's on the hinge of the, of the attack between the British and the French. It was, the, it was one of the objectives that would have been taken. And it's the collection there's, very interesting. I, I, I put it third behind the other two places there. Awesome. And speaking of uh, Perone, I want to bring on Steve here next because um, he very specifically mentions uh, folks that, go, that don't go further south than the Somme. Yeah, uh, this is probably for a, a Brit- the British audience, so probably don't go much further than the Somme if it's in anywhere. And it's a great insight into the French because they have to realise that the French were part of the Battle of the Somme as well. And here, speaking of books, I'd like to bring in our late friend Dave O'Mara. This book's excellent. It covers the Somme battlefield from August 14, see the French were there first, to June 16, before the first day. Uh, It's got another book that covers the actual French involvement in the the Battle of the Somme. But what's good about this one for the beginner uh, of interest into the French army, the appendix at the back, this is a bit about the organisation of the French Army in 1914, French great structures, uh, French abbreviations. So it's a, a, little, a little, great little book. Uh, and on the back, there's a bit of a guide to the French Army. 
Once you've read that, if you're interested in the organisation of the French Army, you can move up to this one by Cox and Watson, which says everything in there, it, which regiments form which divisions, which form which corps, and so on, so on there. So the two sort of more general books. My specific interest is a battle of the frontiers and the French third and fourth army fronts. And the two books, there's two guys who were passionately interested in that for many years. Simon House studied it, thought about it for 10 or so years before he studied under uh, Philpott at King's College London and did his doctorate uh, on the battle. And he's produced this book, Lost Opportunity. Uh, Joff attack, uh, Joff's attack through the Central Ardennes explains the reasoning behind it, but also a bit about pre-war French organisation, what went wrong, what were the problems, and so on. Uh, it's probably, I would suggest, the best English language book that explains uh, the Battle of the Ardennes, Battle of the Frontiers, 22nd of August, 1914. A friend of mine wrote his life work. He spent probably 30 years studying the battle, and it uh, produced two large volumes of nearly 900 pages each, one covering the 22nd of August, one covering the 22nd to 26th, Jean-Claude Delay. Uh, this is a precis of it. It's only about 400 pages long uh, through Economica, the French publisher. It's in French. What's remarkable is these people studied it for nearly 20 years, the same battle, and come to virtually the same conclusion uh, about the missed opportunity with 12th Corps in the centre, and the reasons for the, the failure, and some of the myths where people think the French failed didn't really apply. Uh, so if you read French, that's probably just edges it. English, Simon House's version is excellent. So those are two books I would recommend on the Battle of the Frontiers. As to places to visit, yes, Ved, and we're all going to agree on that one, I think, but I would say, again, aimed at the British visitor, next time you're in Flanders or the Somme, just look at the nearest French cemeteries, because they are there. And if you, if that piques your interest a bit more, read a few names, because the French, uh, they might, you might think, oh, they're boring cement crosses, but actually on there, there's a lot of information, if it's named. You've got the name, data, and the regiment. Then go back to the Memoir des On website. Yes, there's an English guy, but it's in French, but it's, A, it's free, so you can mess about to your heart's content. It's not going to cost you anything. And you can find a bit about that soldier, Bit about his regiment. On that, as Bryn has said, you've got the regimental uh, histories in a lot of cases where they exist, the war diaries. You can read up a bit more about it, and that way you can build up an interest in the French army through your own personal experience. So that's what I would say. Not a specific site, but if you're in the area of Flanders or the Somme or anywhere on the Western Front, pick the local French cemetery, because there will be one, and read up about the people buried there. Thank you. Uh Steve, that's that's an excellent approach to to learning about um, the French experience. I, I've never thought of that before. Um, so thank thank you for sharing that with us. I'm um, going to go to Jim and then and then Rich. Okay, so Jim, if you um, any anything that you would suggest, any books or, or sites? I think most of them you have been taken away from me by various people at one point. Each person has spoken. I thought, oh, that's another one ticked off my list that I wouldn't know. So I think it's it's covered most of them. I'd, I'd, I would fully support all of various things that have been said in terms of books and in terms of places to go. Um, in terms of, yeah, there is a, it's a lot of cost and so on. And it's only a small book and it's quite expensive. But if you want to look at the French army post 
the Battle of the Frontiers, in other words, early 15, and Jonathan Clowes' book of the early trench tactics of the French army, which is basically looking at Second Artois, um, is it's, it's his PhD work, but it doesn't read like a PhD. I think he's rewritten it into the book. I've read both the PhD and the book, and he's rewritten it into the book to be um, accessible as a read. And it really does. And it was one of those first reads for me that said, oh, my God, I really don't know what happened to the French between 14 and 15. I now understand. And his research into things like uh, Note 5779 and how the French received all that information was talked about by somebody earlier on about getting in the first two weeks, getting information about what was going wrong that early um, and what, what, what we were going to learn about it and turning it into an actual uh, document to go out to to, to divisions. Um, it, it opened my eyes. So it's, again, the Jonathan Clouser book is expensive for a very small book, but uh, but actually worth it. And I don't think you can get it secondhand very easily either. Uh, but it's a very good one. You can get his PhD online, though, Jonathan Clouser. If you, if you look, search long enough, uh, Jonathan himself will say, don't buy the book, go online and read, read the PhD. <laughs> it's just about the same. Uh, and that was his that was his comment to me. So uh, he, he basically said, you haven't bought the book, have you? <laughs> <laughs> you silly man <laughs> it's all there but yeah it's, so, it's I, I keep where, to go, where to go is 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 i mean people have covered uh i was going to talk about the the museum of Milan, which i thought was really good uh which which brim brought in because i thought that was very 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 good uh from a, a french creation for their own war type of thing um I thought it was a very a very good place to visit and and and, and away from the battlefields and so on um I'd sort of back as well in terms of going to going to places. And for me, that is, if you are going to the sort of Vimy Ridge, doing this sort of standard thing, go to, I know Bart said, go to Notre Dame de l'Est. Go up there and just, not only just go into the cemetery and have a look around that and, and the, the new memorial, the Ring Memorial, but also there's a little museum there and there are trenches in the museum. It's it's a very ramshackle type thing. It's typical French, really. Run on a shoestring and ramshackled and so on. But that is they are actually the front lines there of, of 15. When the Germans push the French back in 15, it's not some sanctuary wood rear guard, rear end trenches as well. You can actually follow the battle there uh, in, in sort of 15. Um, Second Artois started exactly on that ground. So you are on the ground. Um but the the basilica and the the lantern t- tower itself, plus the just just to visit there, just take in the French uh, losses, and then go down to the uh, La Target cemetery, just to add another cemetery to it, to, because the French don't have the multitude of cemeteries. But for once, it's one of the few areas, other than on the end, where there are lots of French large cemeteries. One of the few areas in northern France that the British tend to get to, where you've got big French cemeteries almost next to each other to give the scale of loss for the French. And those two are very, very visible elements of that. So in terms of a visit, it's get to get yourself to Arras, which is a beautiful place anyway. I'll just sell my hometown. And um, go to Notre Dame de Lorette and down to La Target at the, at the, at the foot of there as well. Yeah, I definitely recommend the museum at Notre Dame de Lorette. We stopped there um, in December. Just yeah. on, on the way on the way down to to Paris, and it's it's run by a family, so it's the it's the son and the uh, and the and the and the um, and the parents, and 
yeah, it's just a fascinating. It's a. T- it's not very big, the museum, but it's all original stuff in there. There's nothing fake about what's in the museum. It's all proper. The uniforms are all correct, and they've just got so much material. It's a complete mess. It's not. It's not your minimalistic look of let's just put one object here and just look at that one object. There's about twenty objects in a very small area. And every time you look, you see new things. You go, oh, I, d- I did see this last time. And they just constantly add to the, the collection they've got. So don't expect any kind of great explanations about what you've got there. But it is a great little museum. And then that, obviously around the back, you've got the trenches. Ironically, we didn't go because they look like rivers uh, <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I am trying to persuade them at the moment to, to try and create some boards to show what the trenches are in terms yeah. of 50 Instead, instead of they just because I think people think they just recreated trenches, and, and they are in a sense, but they are in they're they are on the battlefield. They are real in terms of that's where it happened type of thing. So, but that bit, comes back to what we just said at the start of this whole conversation: yeah. is that again, if that was a British line or from another nation, they would be properly selling it. But this is just a little family. It's a family-run thing, and. When you look at it, yeah, they they don't there's nothing there going, these are these are original, these are not made up, these are the original lines from 15. And yes, but there's no there's there's no adverts for it or anything like that. It's you just need to know. And again, I think it comes back to the whole thing about the French is that you just need to know to go and find these kind of uh, things. Awesome. Jim, you were talking about Jonathan Krauss's book um like early early trench tactics is it kraus krauser it's, it's like he's it's it's british but k-r-a-u-s-e krauser come um, on rich <laughs> oh, you'd be very good at holding books up <laughs> downstairs somewhere or somewhere i can't remember where I, got it. I couldn't afford it on my salary <laughs> yeah that, that's what i was going to say like i, I keep i keep uh, checking amazon and it's i mean here yeah, in the yeah. us it, it comes in yeah. 60 bucks which I, I don't know what that translates to it it's roughly you know like isn't that 60 pounds now yeah. uh, <laughs> I, shit I, I do think it is man i'm sorry <laughs> um google jonathan krauser and the, the book i'll find the title of early early trench tactics of the first world of the french army or something like that and you'll find a downloadable copy somewhere I've either the book or the PhD, one or the other. I can't remember. Perfect. We'll we'll see if we can we can so get it for free. <laughs> maybe find a link to that. Sorry, Mr. And that's, and that's recommended by Jonathan to do. So I'm not. There's no argument about the author being upset over that. Um, he he told me to do that. <laughs> Rich, if if uh, if you would give us give us your recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, on top of what people said, I've got Tim Gale's French Tanks of the Great War. Um, very detailed. Um, absolutely superb research. Um, and if, if there's anything you want, ever want to know about any French involvement in the tanks in the First World War, that would be the one to go for. It's in English as well, which is great. And that was Mike Nyberg's book, When France Fell. Uh, absolutely brilliant. One of the best books I've ever written. Absolutely love it. I've read it a couple of times already, which is very rare for me. Um, and he, uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant author. And the one thing I'm going to... Sh- Can I share my screen? Is that okay? 
Cool. If I can share my screen, I'm going to point you to a website because I, I like lots of things for free. You should be so able to. A, rich. Yep. There you go. I'm a, I'm, a pr- I'm a proud Yorkshireman. I like lots of things for free. This is uh, carto1418.fr. Uh, there's a little animation on the screen. This is the Battle of the Frontiers. So I know Steve's talked about that a couple of times. It's a, an absolute labour of love by this guy. He has spent years and years and years plotting um, the position of the uh, the front on every day of the war. It's so you you can oops sorry you can so this is an animation it's got from the Battle of the Frontiers if I make that actually right size you can select your your period so we can go into no I don't know let's just I'm going to choose one at random for March 1915 click on the 12th of March it will take you to when it does it you can see it's a very very large scale map uh, great for plotting. Um, where people are absolutely fantastic for plotting where people are clearly better with the French army you can see the French army there um, but it'll tell you where each division is sitting because it's done at divisional level some of the Germans are a little bit less granular so they tend to be done at core level um, and, and also some of the, the, the British ones depending on when it is British Canadian forces um, etc Sometimes it's not as good, but having said that, you can see that it's absolutely, to me, it's absolutely superb resource because it enables me as a as a sort of person researching it to look at a particular date or dates and then get a very good idea about who's in, who's out of the line on a particular day. So when you're doing some research on a battle, it's absolutely invaluable. I found this absolutely invaluable. And there's things I've seen in here that I've gone, oh, I did. I absolutely didn't know that. And it, it's great for, as well, sometimes you, you think a particular division is, is based somewhere at a particular day because you've read it and read it somewhere. And actually, when you, when you look at this map, you can question it, which is great because then you get to see, well, it, was it true or not? And so that would be one of the, you know, as I say, one of the sources that I would use as a uh, as a free resource, uh, Carto1418.fr. I've got it bookmarked in my second Marne map, so I've got everything from the middle of July to the middle of August. So uh, the one I look look at a lot. Uh, and again, it's it's you'll see here it, it, it's less granular for for the British parts and the Canadian parts uh, down to and then the Australians. But you'll see it, it does by division by division. It's got the Americans in there as well, um, and American divisions in there as well. And also it does, which helps hugely in points where some of the uh, locations are for their various headquarters, which is, again, another useful sort of background, uh, background tip. Cool. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. All right, gentlemen, we are, um, so I believe, um, let me just check the time. Yeah, we're running at about two and a half hours here. This is awesome. 
Gentlemen, we're, we're going to leave it here for the evening. Thank you so, so much for um, taking time out of, out of your, your evenings to, to come on. We have just barely scratched the surface talking about um, the French army and, and its experience in World War I. I'm, I'm really thankful um, that we've had the, the chance to talk here. And hopefully we can, um, we can do it again uh, here soon. We can, we can maybe even run a, a, a multi-part uh, series so this is this has been great. Um, I will post links to uh, many of the the the, the books and uh, and everything that that we've talked about. There is a lot. There's a lot to process here, but this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, I'll also try and post links to where um, to where you you gentlemen can all um, be found, mainly on the the Twitter machine for now, um, as long as that stays running. So. Uh, <laughs> If not, we'll all have to migrate over to Mastodon. So <laughs> we'll we'll see how it goes. All right, guys. Well, um, thank you so much for coming. Um, and I will and I'll follow up with with details for for part two, guys. Any yeah, that's that's it for me. So gentlemen. Brilliant. Thank Great. you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Good to thank see you all. guys. Oh, thank yes. you guys. We'll we'll be in touch. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you. Cheers. Au revoir. Bye. Au revoir.